Welcome to everybody this morning. Special welcome to those of you who got your normal allotment of sleep. Maybe weren't here for first hour. I I shouldn't be too hard. Lena and I did that once. I think it was our second year, second or third year. We just waltzed in and pastor was finishing with his closing prayer or something like that. Or maybe it was a little bit before then. So I, I, I can't be too harsh on anybody who forgot to set their, their clocks back. At this point, though, I think most of us have phones that automatically bounce forward. And if that's what you're using for your alarm, then you really have no excuse. And, you know, if, if, if it was just one year, you know, one year every 10 years, you understand if someone makes a mistake like that and, and gets up late, you know, it's, it's bound to happen. But it, it's if the person every year was an hour late. At that point, you would start to wonder if they were taking advantage of the system and, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a late, hour late for church, you know. At least in the, in the fall, if you're an hour early, just go get breakfast, right, and then come back. A lot of those things, when you see it in your life or in someone else's, one time, okay, I understand that, you know, people make mistakes, they, they fall into sin, they make poor choices, but then it becomes a habit, and then it happens repeatedly. And it starts becoming something that it's ingrained into you. Um, One writer said many years ago that it took 21 days to build a habit. And, And that was actually a misrepresentation of exactly what he said. But that's gotten stuck in people's minds. 21 days. They think they can build good habits in 21 days. It takes a lot less than 21 repetitions to build bad habits. And we're going to see this morning about someone who was a believer, someone who was a friend of God, and got into a bad sin habit. And so I hope that we'll see this morning about how when we're in a sin habit like that, we'll see what the stakes are. They're not simply that we need to get out of that rut or that we've made a mistake. The stakes are higher than that. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 20. Genesis 20. If you remember, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ken spent several messages on the life of Abraham. And I thought it was very interesting. One of his key messages was to show how Abraham was not a perfect saint. He was not flawless. He had his, his faults. And one of them is in Genesis 12, when he has just been called by God. At the beginning of that chapter, that's when the Lord calls him from his father's family, from his father's land, says, you're going to be a sojourner. You're going to travel all around. Eventually, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless you and your offspring. So get up and get going. And he sets them, sets them on this long journey that would really take the rest of his life. And that was in Genesis 12. At the end of that chapter, Abraham, as Pastor Ken Uh, told us, make the mistake of going into Egypt and conspiring with Sarah, his sister, Sarai at that point, Abram. Their names hadn't even developed into what we know them as now. And they misrepresented themselves as brother and sister. It was a, a safety ploy in Genesis 12. Well, as you continue through the book of Genesis, you see God working through Abraham Uh, In many notable circumstances, many great doctrinal passages, God speaking to Abraham as he would to a friend. And then in chapters 18 and 19, you have the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you recall, 
At that, in that narrative, Abraham was the one who was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically for Lot, his relative and his family, but even for the whole city. Lord, will you spare the city if this many are found? What about this many? And he beseeched God on the behalf of you know, a pagan city. Interestingly, though, as we get into Genesis 20, Abraham is in another pagan city, but he's not nearly as, as kind-hearted. He's, he doesn't care about them as much anymore. He's only looking out for himself. And in fact, I think what we can see as we get started in chapter 20 is that the, the events of 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, had unsettled Abraham. They'd shaken him, as they might have you, to hear that some of your family members, remember, those were his, his second cousins, I believe, uh, Lot's children and Lot's wife. Family members were burned up. A whole city was extinguished in God's wrath. You might have thought that having seen such awesome divine power and judgment, that Abraham would be very close to God's will. We would be trusting God perfectly at that point. But he wasn't. These events had made him revert to the manipulating and lying of 25 years before. In chapter 12, was 25 years before. And Abram, Abraham resorts to lying. Look at the first few verses of chapter, two, of chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. It's some of the area where we would associate with the Philistines a few hundred years later. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. She is my sister. It says, Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Very sparse narrative. <laughs> A lot is happening there. I'll try to unpack it a bit for you. The pattern we see in Abraham's life in chapter 12, again, if you look earlier in the book, in, chap- in the narrative of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, is that when things get uncomfortable, Abraham is prone to relying on his own smarts, his own shrewdness, his ability to manipulate the situation, manipulate people. He seems to have gotten into the habit of telling this particular lie throughout his travels. But it's interesting that as he represents Sarah as his sister, as we'll see, he gives his motives later there to protect himself, to protect his belongings. Abimelech calls him on his bluff. And it made me wonder, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, 25 years ago, you know, Sarah is represented as a beautiful woman, but now she's 90 years old. What, why was the king of, a, of that area, king of Gerar, pulling her into his harem at this point? And uh, uh, as we'll see, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, later, were these ladies just drop-dead gorgeous that the men couldn't help themselves? Probably not, especially at, at 90 years old for Sarah. I'm sure she was still attractive, but it, the answer probably lies in the Middle Eastern customs of that time, if you were able to marry the daughter or sister or unattached female from a very important family, and Abraham was a very wealthy man. God had blessed him for years. And so he came with a great host, servants, livestock, family members. It was impressive. So when he came to stay in Gerar, I'm sure it was a big deal. 
And when the men of Gerar heard that he had an available woman, even if she was older, well, Abimelech saw his opportunity. It was a cagey, ambitious move. And he pulled this woman into his harem as a way to establish a favorable relationship with Abraham, you know, to establish commerce with him. Of course, though, you have to ask, what is Abraham going to do now? I mean, it backfired, right? Just in these couple verses, he lied and he got caught in it. He doesn't even realize, Abimelech doesn't even realize that he's been deceived yet. But things are happening. Isn't it funny how God often allows us in those familiar besetting sins to be caught not just once, but again and again? As we saw the other week in David's life, having our sin exposed is actually a mercy at the hand of God because he does not want his children, and Abraham and Sarah were indeed his children, he does not want his children to continue in that unconfessed sin, a relationship that's fractured with God. It helps us kick our addiction on self-reliance. Two points today, that's all, two points. When we manipulate people, we show that we don't believe God's promises. When we manipulate people, we show that we don't believe God's promises. That's the stakes. And I see that when we place this within that narrative flow. As I mentioned, Genesis 12, he makes the same mistake. But I need to go through some of the passages since then that show God restating the covenant. In chapter 13, after Abram and Lot had parted, the Lord says to Abram, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Makes another promise to Abraham. He already done this in chapter 12. Look at chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. The word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the stars and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then really the entirety of chapter 17, the covenant of circumcision, a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. I am going to fulfill my promises to you, Abraham. I am not going to let you go into the ground without a legacy of children. I'm going to protect your life and your legacy. We see that in, verses, in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And then in, chapter, in verse 15 of that same chapter, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good age. He promised him a legacy, and he promised him that he would protect his life. Abraham, you're going to have children. I know it seems hard to believe now. You're 100 years old, Sarah's 90, but you're going to have children. And in fact, just before this, in chapter 18, the angel of the Lord, the divine messenger, had said to Abraham and Sarah, one year from now, I will visit you and you will have the child of promise. 
that lineage of a great nation will begin. They'd waited 25 years. God had promised them a legacy. He'd promised to make Abraham to bless him beyond anybody to that point. He'd chosen him from his father's land, had guided him wherever he went, protected him, promised him that he would go to his grave in peace. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. How much greater a promise can we get from God than that? Even if you wanted to cut Abraham some slack for his similar transgression in chapter 12, which was, seems like only weeks or months after God first promised him and first called him at the beginning of that chapter, at this point in his life, Abraham has received God's promises over and over and over again. To doubt all of that is not merely a minor slip-up in Abraham's otherwise sterling record. It's a significant failure of belief in God's promises. Significant. If you take the time to diagnose yourself, as I did this week, when I was tempted to manipulate people to lie or to maneuver to, to gain advantage in one way or another, you'll find that behind each of those lies or manipulations, we're failing to believe a promise of God. There is something that God has told us we must do, we can do through His grace. And if, like Abraham, we choose instead to manipulate people, to rearrange everything to fit, then we're proving that we have not believed God's promises. Whether that's lying, bullying someone, faking an emotion to get what we want, We've forgotten at that moment how sovereign God is. We're climbing into his throne and trying to issue edicts in our name at that moment. And if we had any doubt that Abraham was in the wrong here, look in chapter 20. Look at the feeble excuses that he makes when Abimelech calls him on the carpet. Abimelech, as we'll see, makes three accusations against Abraham. Look in verse 11. Abraham makes three excuses. The first one, Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Excuse number one. Well, there's, there's no fear of God in this place. Not meaning that these people weren't in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Of course they weren't. They were pagans. But he meant, these people must be so bad. Everywhere we go in these pagan cities, you know, this culture is so bad, it, we need to lie. We need to manipulate Sarah because there's no fear of God. These people have no scruples. They have no respect for God's morals. And I was thinking, do we ever say that about our culture today? Do we ever say, surely <laughs> these people have no morals. They have no scruples. They, they're, they're, they're as anti-God as you can get. Maybe that's your boss at work. Boy, if I, if I asked him for time off to go to that church picnic on Wednesday night, you know, I, he, he's a real pagan. I hear his language, he, the type of jokes that he makes. He's not going to respect that, so I'm just going to lie. I'm just going to say that I'm sick and I need to leave work early that day. And, and we justify it. You know, it doesn't even make sense to try and reason with these people. 
You don't know how bad they are. Or maybe you think, and I'm not picking on homeschoolers here. I was homeschooled. My wife was homeschooled. Some states are a lot more restrictive than Michigan. They require the parents to check in with the state and get curriculum uh, submitted or at least uh, monthly or uh, quarterly checks, I think it is. What if a family said, oh, man, local municipality, man, they're a bunch of arrogant so-and-sos. They are so anti-God. You know what? I'm just not even going to follow the law because I know they'd probably make my life miserable and persecute me because I'm a Christian. So I'm just not even going to... There's, there's no fear of God there. Friends, we have to be careful that we don't make the excuse for our sin against unbelievers because it, we can't do what's right. They wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't appreciate it. They would, they would come back and take advantage of it. It's not an excuse to dishonor God. And it's particularly if we're caught in a deception, in a manipulation, it makes Jesus look even worse. That's the first excuse that Abraham made. Then he said, Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, we, we didn't know this to this point. Some people think that might not even be the truth. I, I tend to think it is. They didn't have as strict uh, family guidelines at that point. But Abraham's saying, look, we do have a family relationship. But they had represented themselves as brother and sister. It didn't make up for the lie. And then look at the end of that in verse 13. Worst of all, (laughs) Abraham incriminates God in his deception. When God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Seems to be substantiated by what we know in this chapter and, and chapter 12 as well. He does seem to be uh, working with Sarah, conspiring in this deceit. Really? You're going to blame your lie on God? God had me leave my parents' land and travel to all you pagans. I mean, what else was I going to do? How else was I going to be protected? I hope you can see the irony in that. The friend of God has turned to his old friend, manipulation. Shaken by those recent events at Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham has forgotten 25 years of God's provision and promises. He thinks that if he can just maneuver through the landmines of his culture by his own shrewdness, that he can emerge safe and sound. He can secure God's blessing through his own manipulation. Even when caught in this lie, Abraham's instinct was to try and mitigate the king's anger rather than confessing it and coming clean. Friends, one more thing is going to show you just how serious these events were. Remember I said in the previous, well, chapter 18, the previous narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah, the visitor had told 90-year-old Sarah, maybe 89 at that point, 89-year-old Sarah a year from now, you're going to have a baby. That woman is now in the harem of another man. A woman who is fertile by God's provision because only a few weeks or months are separating these events. 
Sarah is due any day to conceive the promised child. The one who's going to begin the lineage of God's chosen people. The one that's been promised for 25 years. Abraham has jeopardized the very plan of God, we think, by his manipulation. Stakes are exceedingly high. The Lord's covenant promise was in danger of being ruined by the natural impulses of a man who had taken a wife not long ago. Now granted, he had probably many wives. But for him to consummate that marriage would violate Sarah, would commit adultery in God's eyes, and would sully the reputation of the child that God had promised and had provided In the beginning of verse 3, chapter 20, we see God stepping into the picture. He's not going to let this continue. The stakes are too high. God came to Abimelech in a dream one night. This is not unusual. He's been known to come to unbelievers before, people like Laban and Balaam, Pharaoh even. He's been known to come and give direct revelation to these people before. We're going to see when we manipulate God's promises, or when we manipulate people, we're showing that we don't believe God's promises. Thankfully, when we manipulate people, God still fulfills his promises. He still fulfills his promises. Verse 3, God said to Abimelech, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? Didn't she also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. Irony. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. I think it's interesting that much like Abraham beseeched God on behalf of his family and really the whole cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, here Abimelech beseeches God on the, on the grounds of God's justice. Lord, are you going to slay the righteous? I didn't know it. I have clean hands, a clean heart. I did not intend to commit adultery. It's interesting. As we see through Abimelech's reactions here, the very accusation that was in Abraham's heart, these people don't fear God, is proven dead wrong. Dead wrong. Abimelech and and his group do fear God. They do understand the stakes of adultery. Again, Abraham is proven wrong in his excuses. Abimelech concludes his self-defense by saying, I I haven't touched her yet. I, I, I have clean hands and a clean heart. And I think it's interesting, though, that the Lord tweaks that narrative. He agrees with him and says, Yes, Abimelech, you didn't touch her yet. I know you did it innocently. You thought she was this man's sister. But, I'm the one who moved in your heart. 
as we'll see at the very end of the chapter, God had caused some sort of sexual malfunction in Abimelech's household. He had clearly marked that woman out as off limits. He was protecting the mother of the promise. Even when we manipulate people, even when we're caught, even when our plans, our our schemes disintegrate, and we think, oh, it's, it's too late now. There's no turning back. I messed up. God still fulfills his promises. He's that kind of God. He's powerful. He's sovereign. And he's faithful. I think it's interesting that Abimelech understood that this would have been adultery, a sin against God. And another interesting point, verse 7, he says, he is a prophet. Do you know that's the first usage of the term in the Old Testament, as far as I'm aware, the first usage of the term prophet. You say, really? I didn't know the patriarchs were prophets. Yeah, Psalm 105 goes on to describe these patriarchs as prophets. They served as conduits of God's blessing and God's revelation to the world around them. That's what a prophet did. They had other roles, other functions, to be sure, but they were prophets. Let me just say this. It goes again to show that no one is above failing, right? A man of God, a friend of God, who was a patriarch in the covenant line, who was a prophet, who interceded for others in front of God, he could fall. He could get caught up in a, a continual habitual sin. There's only one perfect prophet Only one who fulfills that role flawlessly. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the only one. So we shouldn't look to these flawed but blessed heroes in Scripture and make them our mark, make them our target. Because they're flawed just like we are. We look to the perfect prophet. Let me read the response of Abimelech, verses 8 through 10 says, early the next morning, right away, (laughs) he doesn't delay, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Did they respect God's hand? You better believe it. Another mark against Abraham. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, three accusations. He's turned the table. He's on the offensive now. How dare you do this to me, is the gist of it. What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? He understands the guilt of adultery, that he would be liable if he had committed that. You have done things to me that should never be done. And then he asked him, what was your reason for doing this? You can feel the passion, the heat behind his words, can't you? He's indignant. He may not be a believer, But he's a man who understands the rudimentary principles that God has laid out for humanity. You don't take another man's wife. And and you almost let me do that. How could you see her when I sent a camel for her and she got in that camel and left for my house? I could have slept with her that night. How, How could you have done this to me, Abraham? Abraham conducted his deception in private. A little pillow talk with Sarah. 
before they entered the land of Gerar. Abimelech publicly announced his innocence. Abraham, as we said, assumed that the men of Gerar would not fear God. Verse 8 and the whole passage really shows us that they did. Abimelech understood the notion of guilt for this flagrant sin. He's outraged that he was almost an unknowing participant. Abimelech, after his threefold accusation, after Abraham's uh, three weak defenses, I don't know if you want to call them defenses, he does three, makes three noble gestures that I think the, the writer of Scripture, Moses, of course, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, is, going, is making absolutely crystal clear that we understand this man was acting in accordance with God's will. The patriarch was not. The pagan was. Just stark differences. Look at what he does, starting in verse 14. The first thing, the gesture he made, is he brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So the first gesture he makes is restitution towards the wronged husband. He says, I'm going to rectify this situation. I'm going to appease the wounded spouse. So I'm making, I'm returning your wife, of course, but I'm sending her not home empty-handed. She has these signs of her innocence that I'm sending with her. Second gesture is, in 15, Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. Do you know why this is so remarkable? Do you remember what Pharaoh said in chapter 12? Get out of my land. (laughs) When he found out that he'd been deceived, he said, you take your wife, you take your things, and you go. Now, granted, Abraham didn't have nearly as many possessions or family members at that point. But still, Pharaoh evicted him from the land. Abimelech doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I'm hurt. You wronged me, but we're going to make this right. First step is, I'm going to make restitution to the husband. Second step is, Anywhere you want to live, no hard feelings. The land is yours. Third step, and the irony just drips from this last point. To Sarah in verse 16, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. He makes it right with the husband, and he makes it right with the brother. Fine. You're going to represent yourself as some type of weird tag team. When, you're, when you want to be brother, sister, you are. When you want to be husband, wife, you are. That's fine. I'll make it right with both of you. You have, the, you have all the possessions, and then I'm giving you a thousand pieces of silver to cover your shame, Sarah. You are completely vindicated. I did not touch you. If there was ever any doubt about Isaac's paternity, it was put to rest here by the noble actions of a pagan. Amazing. And then, as we close the chapter, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. We didn't know what had happened up to this point, but now we find out God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. As I said, some type of dysfunction was running amok in the household of Abimelech. Something serious he realized his line would go extinct if this wasn't fixed. It wasn't just him. It was all the men, all the women. The reproductive processes had been frozen by the hand of God. None of you are going to have kids 
until this is made right. And the thing that I think is so ironic is Abraham is praying to God for these pagan women to conceive children. His own wife, 90 years old, has not been able to have a kid. 90 years old. You say, well, if, if it was as simple as that, why didn't Abraham pray on behalf of his wife? Goes to show God's power was behind this. God's hand was strong. If he wanted to open the womb of Sarah, he could. If he wanted to close the womb of these women of Gerar, he could. In fact, the same verb at 18, the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving. That's the same verb as in chapter 16, verse 2. Sarah recognized this. She said, the Lord has kept me from having children. My womb is frozen right now. God has promised a child. I'm not sure if I believe it yet. God is sovereign. It is the power of the Lord behind all the events here. And if you flip to chapter 21, you might not even need to flip. The very next verse, chapter 21:1, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Wow, three times in two verses, as the Lord had said, as he promised. God is going to be faithful to his word. Despite our manipulation, God is going to be faithful. Something to be joyful at becomes clear to me that there's a parallel here to another miracle son who was born solely at God's hand. A miracle son whose mother, like as Sarah praised God in chapter 21, she's saying a praise to the Lord. God has brought me laughter, verse 6. Everyone who hears this about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let me read you a few verses from Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. She looks to the future. Then she looks to the past. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The link is complete. Jesus, the child of destiny, the end, the culmination of the messianic line. His forefather Isaac was born at God's promise. God fulfilled his word to a doubting older couple who thought, Maybe this is never going to happen after all. And immediately after Abraham has to pray for these pagan women, God chooses then is the time when I'm going to deliver a son as I promised. Jesus has reconciled us with the Father. He's made those great and precious promises to us of the Lord's intent towards his children. He proves again and again, doesn't he, that our lives are, Our legacies are secure in Christ. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. So it doesn't matter what the trying circumstance in your life may be. Maybe it's a parent or a parent-in-law who's bothering you and you feel like the only way you can get out of the crosshairs is a little white lie. Maybe it's a mistake at work that you feel like, ah, man, no one else has seen this. No one else knows about it. I'm just going to cover it up. I'm going to shift the blame on someone else so that it doesn't come back on me. Maybe it's a friend that is needy. You haven't spent much time with them, and so you make up an excuse. You lie to put them off. You tell yourself, with any of these, or, or many other of the countless examples I could give, this little manipulation of people, it's justifiable. It's understandable. But behind every one of those manipulations, every one of those deceptions, we're telling God, get off the throne I need to drive for a while. I need to be in charge. I need to put your promises on the shelf for at least for a little while because this needs to be fixed. And you're not doing it, so I need to. There is another option behind manipulating to achieve our goals. If God is sovereign and loving, then our trials are not going to derail his plans for us. We can trust his promises because he is perfectly trustworthy. And he's always at work to bring himself glory and bring us closer to that glory. Yes, God will accomplish his purposes in spite of our disobedience. But I would rather walk in the light as he is in the light and fellowship with him as he brings those promises to fruition. As we close, let me remind you of one more sad consequence of manipulation, of deceiving. We saw in Genesis 12, Abraham started this pattern. I would imagine, wouldn't you, that there were other times that he didn't get caught? The two that we read about in chapter 12 and chapter 20, sadly, I think that's just the times that the Lord let him be exposed. Then if you will look to chapter 26, See a sad heritage passed down. Now there was a famine in the land. There's the impetus. There's the trial. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistines in Gerar. Same Abimelech? No, Abimelech literally means, if I can find my notes, something like father of a king or my king is father. So it was a, it was a royal title. This was a different Abimelech, but the same area. Same position. And we find out after the Lord in those first few verses confirms the promise to Isaac. Isaac stayed in Gerar. In verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, I wonder if that's exactly what happened in chapter 20. He said, she is my sister because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Now granted, Isaac wasn't alive when the events of chapter 20 happened. I don't know if Abraham and Sarah told him about that shameful episode in their past. Maybe they thought it wasn't necessary. But that heritage of deception carried on. Isaac made the exact same mistake that his parents had made. Friends, we, to our children are modeling 
what it looks like to be faithful to God's promises, to believe God's promises. We are showing them every day in the words that we say, in the actions that we carry out, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Is it a part-time gig? You do it when it's convenient? You do it when you think the stakes are low and it's not going to matter and nobody's going to find out about this deception and, you know, I just, I just really need fill in the blank. Are we going to show him that following Jesus, following that promised one who came just as was foretold, carried out all of God's plans despite the opposition, despite the unfaithfulness of his followers, that we can trust him regardless of the situation. Manipulating people is not a low-stakes crime. It's not a victimless offense. And there are little eyes watching when you lie to Grandma on the phone. There are little ears listening when you call in sick and you're not sick. Friends, the stakes are high. Trust God no matter what. He will provide for us even through our failings. But as Abraham learned, manipulating people shows that we have failed to believe God's promises and we need to get back on track and trust him no matter the circumstance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I am convicted, Lord, I was convicted last week with a chain of virtues that I too often try to wield in my own strength without connecting it to your work and to your person. And Lord, I'm convicted this week of those, what I think are minor deceptions, minor manipulations of people. And Father, it is wounding my own soul when I don't trust your promises, when I sit in your throne and try to rule in your stead. I pray that you would forgive me, convict those who are here, perhaps of those small areas where they are telling lies, where they are maneuvering. Help us, Lord, to trust you with our whole life. We trusted you for our salvation. Help us to trust you for our day-to-day lives. May you be glorified. May we not shame you. And Lord, bring about your promises to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.